0: This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 24th of September, 2021, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, fake tradies and real earthquakes in Melbourne, the fine tradition of kissing the ring of Rupert Murdoch in New York, and we have a look at the latest opinion polls and what it means for the next federal election. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. The sound of one hand clapping. Thanks to all those new Patreon subscribers. The number of supporters continues to grow every single week. So thank you very much to all those people that are signing up. We've got two tiers of support available. There's the Ruby Standard Supporter at $5 per month and Gold Standard Supporter at $10 per month. So $5 is just the cost of a large latte. $10 is the cost of a falafel roll, maybe with a bag of chips on the side. So it's not very, very much. It helps us contribute to the economic growth of this country as well. So, David, this is a winner for everyone. And as Jeff Kennett used to say, it's a classic win-win situation.
1: I just wanted to express my gratitude to all the uh, Patreons as well. I haven't yet, and that's because I've been so touched. I haven't known what to say. So I think the best thing is uh, thank you. And it's great value. We're looking at uh, newer and other things as we go through, and you'll get more and more of the best political podcast in the
0: country. And you can find the details at our website, newpolitics.com.au. You can sign up there, and it's a very, very good way to support independent journalism. There's been a lot going on in Melbourne over the past week. Coronavirus cases are increasing. It's not as high as it is in Sydney, but it's slowly creeping up. They suffered a 5.8 magnitude earthquake. And if that wasn't enough, there was a renter crowd dressed up as construction union members and 35 year old men dressed up as old grandmothers going off to attack the streets of Melbourne. And this is all during a time of lockdown when they should actually be home in bed and looked after by their babysitters. Now, These are not unionists. Real unionists wouldn't be protesting and seeing horses on the Westgate Bridge. And that's a site where 35 construction workers died when a section of the bridge collapsed in 1970. Real unionists wouldn't be urinating and leaving their garbage behind at the Shrine of Remembrance. And real unionists certainly wouldn't be wearing a wig and a red dress to try and trick the police into thinking that they're a 74-year-old grandmother. Now, I do know some union members are into cross-dressing, and that's fine. But most of these people protesting in Melbourne were not members of the union. This is all being levered up by the right-wing media in Melbourne, and it's not just News Corporation, but it's also being pushed by The Age and increasingly by the ABC. The Liberal Party is trying to dress this up as union thuggery at its worst, even though it's got nothing to do with the unions, and they're also trying to create the link between the riots in Melbourne and the Labour Party, while also trying to create sympathy with the protesters. Some Liberal senators as saying, oh, yes, we understand the frustrations of the protesters, and it took Scott Morrison a full day before he even mentioned anything about the rioters. It's really bizarre. One thing with
1: union is that if they were going to sing anything, surely they'd sing a union song. Maybe not Solidarity Forever or The Balls of Bob Menzies, but they'd sing a union song. Secondly, union protests tend to be very well organised, they tend to be very peaceful. There are exceptions, but they also tend to have the leaders of the union very prominent. This mob marched up to the CMFEU headquarters and demanded John Setka come down and speak to him. Now, I'm not going to presume that there were no CMFEU members there. It's a very broad church, and I have no doubt that members were there, but they weren't there representing the union. They were there as private citizens with an opinion. It got more and more bizarre and disturbing as they walked towards the Shrine of Remembrance, chanting lest we forget. And then really, it's not a word I like using about this stuff because I'm a bit more of a secularist, but desecrating the space. There were a lot of Unionists who went to World War II and served in many capacities, as there were all types who went across. And I can't imagine many of the Union diggers would have approved of the Union doing this. It's a bizarre and terrible and awful thing. And of course, if you look carefully at the photos, there's not a lot of calloused hands. There's a lot of gym muscle as opposed to work muscle. There's not a lot of stained work shirts or used work shirts. You could see the creases from where they would bought them from Kmart or Lowe's or the $2 shop. You can buy this stuff anywhere. You don't need to be a tradesperson to buy a high-vis vest. And in fact, a lot of people need them for other purposes. We had Bunnings Karen, who claimed last year that the lockdown was against the 1948 United Nations Charter somehow. <laughs> and who I suspect calls herself a sovereign citizen. It was just bizarre. And then Singing the Horses, which happens to be uh, one of the most requested songs I get as a performer. We don't do it often uh, in my duo because it's a more difficult song than it seems. And also I think Daryl Braithwaite's voice is so suited to it, as good as my duo partner's voice is. Russell Hull, for those keeping score. It's a bizarre and disturbing footnote in Australian history.
0: Well, this has largely been promoted by the mainstream media in Melbourne. There's been 18 months of a violent campaign against Victoria Labor and Daniel Andrews. The Herald Sun, they're the ones that have really enabled this. And it's also been encouraged by The Age newspaper as well. The media has been doing a lot of ambulance chasing, encouraging this process through a barrage of anti-lockdown stories. I think we had something like 21 consecutive nights on the ABC 730 report focusing on disgruntled cafe, gym and business owners, lockdown story after lockdown story, creating a sense of dissent. There's also been a sense of apology from the media as well. In an earlier version of the Melbourne protest in July, just a couple of months ago, the ABC announced them as peaceful protests from people who were supposedly frustrated and that's the same language used by the federal government and the abc was announcing this even as their live footage on television was showing the escalating violence on the street and the clashes with police now Compare Sydney with Melbourne. They are different cities, but they do have similar types of demographics and similar populations. In a few years' time, projections show that Melbourne will actually be a larger city than Sydney, and there's been a great focus on how bad is Melbourne to have these sorts of people, but Sydney has got as many, if not more, of these supposedly sort of people, the anti-vax crowd, the proud boy type, anti-Bill Gates, the conspiracy theorists, the people that don't want to be told what to do by the government, even when it's actually in their interest. This incessant, negative, violent and relentless attacks on Victoria, and specifically in Melbourne, they've resulted in these sort of processes. We've got our fair share of idiots in Sydney as well, but there's virtually been nothing but support from the Sydney media for the Berejiklian government. And the seeds of dissent fermented by the media in Melbourne over the past 18 months, that's been the big difference between what's going on in Melbourne and, and why it's not going on in Sydney.
1: I suppose we should point out that there have been a couple of uh, journalists who have started to hold Gladys Berejiklian into account, one from the Daily Telegraph and one from Sky News, and that should be encouraged and praised. And we should also say I've got no objection at all to Dan Andrews being held to account or Anna Palaszczuk or, or the rest of them. That is the job of the press. Dan Andrews seems to get a higher percentage of ridiculous questions. Gladys Berejiklian does get them too. But Dan Andrews seems to get a higher percentage of them. After the Melbourne earthquake, the running joke was that it must have been Dan Andrews' fault. His policies caused it. And in fact, even a few right-wing commentators suggested that it may have been because emergency services were locked down and if it had been worse... Something I didn't quite get what they were trying to say because well it made no sense. <laughs> I think it was the shovel who said clearly Gladys Berejiklian is the better premier
0: because there was no earthquake in Sydney, which was pretty funny. And here's a small snippet from the ABC's 7:30 program where a seismologist is asked a series of questions about what caused the earthquake in the first place. Adam Pascale, why did this earthquake happen now? Well, earthquakes have been happening for millions of years and then that region there, uh, it's obviously a lot of mountains in there and that's been formed by earthquake over millennia. Um, We can't unfortunately predict earthquakes, so when they occur is really out of our control.
1: Do we know what caused this one to happen?
0: No, it's normal tectonic process. Basically, our tectonic plate that we're uh, within is being pushed around and stress builds up in that plate. Is a moderate event like this indicative of anything more serious coming down the track? Certainly, when you have an earthquake, particularly of this sort of magnitude, um, there is an increased chance of further activity, as we've seen with the aftershocks. No one knows when an earthquake is going to occur. From basic primary school science, we do know what causes earthquakes, but We never know when they're going to happen in the future, even in earthquake-prone areas like in New Zealand or Japan. We just never know. And maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into this, but I can't help feeling that the media is trying to create an angle here that Daniel Andrews is such a terrible leader that even earthquakes occur in Melbourne, all because of his leadership, all the dictator Dan stuff. He's such a tyrant that he'll even inflict an earthquake on the people of Melbourne.
1: There is a theory, at least, that global warming is giving us more earthquakes and more intense because of the heating temperature expanding the plates. I may have overstepped my mark in what I know, but I don't know no mainstream journalist took that road. And of course, one earthquake in isolation is probably not the way to take that argument anyway. And, yeah, a news reporter asking, so what caused the earthquake and bringing in a seismologist to explain moving tectonic plates, and that may have been an interesting story, but you're right. It was more to see if
0: they could pin it on Dan Andrews. And there's also talk behind the scenes that Scott Morrison sees this event in Melbourne, a combination of so many different factors. There's the rising case numbers in Victoria. There's the Melbourne riots that have taken place. There's a link between those Melbourne riots and unionism across Australia, trying to make that link between the CFMEU and Anthony Albanese. There's an idea or an understanding that Scott Morrison sees this as his Tampa moment. And that's referring to the twenty oh one election where John Howard was way behind in the polls and then the Tampa incident in the right where there were refugees seeking asylum stranded in the Indian Ocean and they were picked up by the MV Tampa. That completely turned around the national agenda at the time. It's it's a lot more complicated than just saying, well, yeah, it was all about the Tampa incident, but it was an event that galvanized the Liberal Party. That incident occurred in August, the 9-11 attacks in New York, they occurred in September and the federal election was held in October. But it was an event that John Howard could hook on to navigate his entire campaign around national security and he went on to win the 2001 federal election. Scott Morrison sees this as his own tamper moment, and I can't see it being the same sort of issue. Well, for a start, there's no boat involved, but it's typical of the Liberal and the National Parties to try and create havoc from this situation and distress for the community and try to win an election on the back of this. It's totally unacceptable in politics. I know that this is the way that conservative politicians and conservative political parties operate, but it's totally unacceptable.
1: I do think that the Liberal Party in Victoria is in absolute crisis. The party of Henry Bolte, the party of Jeff Kennett, the party essentially of Robert Menzies, who spent time in the Victorian Legislative Council before moving into federal politics. It is now run by an openly corrupt man who lost the last election so badly, he should have been basically tapped on the shoulder and moved into another career. Its more vocal proponents are buffoons. It's a party that I think has looked at what happened in Queensland and looked what happened in Western Australia and has realized that It's not going to win the intellectual argument, but hopefully it can win an emotional one by uh, stirring up the centre by saying, this is what Dan Andrews is bringing you. Of course, Dan Andrews is the second most popular premier in Australia. Now, I've said this before, too. All political figures end up disappointing. And at some point in the future... Dan Andrews may overstep his mark. He may grow in arrogance. He may make a decision that, from his angle, seemed like the right one, but as the ramifications play out, unseen things. And John Howard, Bob Hawke, people might just get tired of him and and want a change. But that change won't be for another election cycle or even two. I think the Liberal Party in Victoria is very desperate, and so they're trying anything. And to connect with neo-Nazis... And Avi Yemeni, the professional stirrer, got up and said he's an Israeli Jew-Nazi, which is a phrase I bet nobody thought would ever have heard in 1948. <laughs> and it becomes dangerous because Australians are, I think, moderate. I think they're moderate to the centre-right, but they are moderate. And I think when you bring in these far-right concepts, you will get people fall behind them, of course. But I think most people will start to step away from things like Nazism and fascism and and those more far right. And I think it's already started with neoliberalism.
0: One other point is the behaviour of the respective liberal parties all around Australia. in the Victoria, Queensland, Western Australian, and federal Liberal parties, they've got the same characteristics. They're trying to appeal to extremist attitudes and behaviours within the electorate, and sometimes they behave like extremists themselves. They engage in racism, whipping up a frenzy within the community on lockdowns and border closures, as we've recently seen in Melbourne. But it seems that if you behave like this when you're in opposition, you lose the support of the electorate, as we saw in the Victoria election in 2018. And that was under the leadership of Matthew Guy, who recently returned to the leadership of the Victoria Liberal Party. We saw it in the Queensland election last year and the West Australian election this year. The Liberal Party lost those elections badly. They behaved like extremists and they were punished at those elections. But When you're actually in government and behave like that, it seems like it's a different story. The Morrison government is as extreme in its ideology, in its political behaviours and its actions as those extreme state liberal oppositions. But they've got the imprimatur of Mm. government. They've got the authority of being in government. And I guess that's the difference. You can be extremist while you're in government, but that doesn't work at all when you're in opposition.
1: Yeah, and. I think one of the reasons that Tony Abbott was such a disaster for the Liberal Party is that he took that very strongly oppositional thing, not dignified, not smart, really, not what you'd expect of a prime minister, let alone a leader of the opposition. Of course, this worked in the short term. And it led us to eight years of, frankly, terrible government. And I wish I could say It's a competent government, I don't agree with it, and this is why I don't agree with it, and we could talk about the policies, but we now have mediocrities at the top. And a mediocrity in the top is okay, provided they're surrounded by good people. George W. Bush wasn't a very good president, but he had some very good people in his cabinet who were very competent, Again, it's not an agreement with their policies or endorsement of their policies even. It's just somebody like Colin Powell or Condoleezza Rice were very sharp, very smart, very capable. Dick Cheney was very smart, very sharp, very capable. At what is a whole other thing. But there's no one in the Liberal Party who is like that. Maurice Payne is apparently doing okay as foreign minister. But considering who she succeeded, you didn't have to be very good to be better. But just trying to find credit where it's due gets harder and harder as as an analyst.
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, the fine tradition of kissing the ring of Rupert Murdoch in New York.
1: In shame. I'm not mum, lies inside.
0: Scott Morrison travelled to New York this week and that would have included a stopover in Hawaii, a scene of many happy memories. And it was supposedly to attend a meeting of the United Nations General Assembly, but he wasn't actually scheduled to speak at the assemblies. And there's also a climate change roundtable discussion hosted by the head of the UN, Antonio Guterres, and UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. But Morrison wasn't actually invited to speak or attend that meeting either. He is meeting with US President Biden, Japanese Prime Minister Suga and Indian Prime Minister Modi. That's in a quad strategic dialogue, but that's not really a high-level meeting. And you do have to wonder, well, why did Scott Morrison actually go to New York? But when we look at his itinerary a little bit more closely, we can see the real reason. He met with the head of the News Corporation, Robert Thompson, for a private dinner, which included former New South Wales Premier Nick Greiner and US Ambassador Arthur Sinodinas. And let's hope that he actually remembers a little bit more of the night than he did at those Sydney water corruption hearings. Just a little bit of history. In the lead-up to an election, Prime Ministers and leaders of the opposition usually try to lick the boots of Rupert Murdoch and quite a few other body parts as well I guess, and make the trip to New York to visit him. Bob Hawke, Paul Keating, John Howard, Kevin Rudd when he was opposition leader, Julia Gillard, Malcolm Turnbull and now Scott Morrison. They always pay a visit to the old dear leader. They kiss the ring and they get the seal of approval. There's one notable omission here, of course, and that's Bill Shorten. He didn't actually make that trip to New York in the lead up to the 2019 federal election and he didn't become prime minister. Should Anthony Albanese, get on that plane to New York to have a quick meal with Rupert Murdoch or one of his lackeys. Doesn't have to be fancy, just some scrambled eggs would do, I reckon. But it seems like that's what you need to do if you want to become the Prime Minister of Australia.
1: It, Australia is a, a weird place like that in that the media concentration is such that you have to get the approval of Murdoch now one of the things that looking at it from the outside is that Murdoch has very little influence in Australia if you look at it one way he owns all the major newspapers in Queensland and every day Anna Palaszczuk was slammed she ends up winning with an increased majority that is extraordinary Victoria, despite all this chaos and continual criticism of Dan Andrews, he remains at 75% or 70% approval rating. And Western Australia, again, exclusively Murdoch-owned media and Kerry Stokes media, two seats to their preferred candidate. Federally, it it is a different reason, but I don't know that it is actually media influence. Probably, I mean, it's probably a part of it. Let's not be churlish here. But I think there are other factors federally. I think, too, the fear of Murdoch is the perception of power rather than the reality of it. Nobody buys the papers. Most newspapers that were ever bought, and this isn't per capita, this is cold numbers, was 1943. And it's been on a downward slide ever since. And around 1990, it went from a gradual slide to a much more pronounced uh, downward slide. And in 2000, again. Now, some of that is, of course, people uh, have stopped buying newspapers and people have stopped watching broadcast television news and stopped listening to the radio. It doesn't matter what the reality is, the perception is the more important. And the perception is that Murdoch can make or break you as prime minister.
0: Well, I think we also have to differentiate between influence over politics and influence over the electorate as well. And mm. I guess that's what the big problem is, the influence over Australian politics. And this process of making the trip to New York to visit Rupert Murdoch or some of his minions in New York, it's another example of this influence of News Corporation in Australian politics. And Anthony Albanese is probably going to keep saying that he doesn't support any policy or any action against the interests of News Corporation, for example, Kevin Rudd's proposal for a royal commission into Murdoch. He also said that complaining about news corporation is a little bit like complaining about the umpire at a football game and reminds me about what Alistair Campbell said many years ago, and he was the senior advisor to former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair, he said that Murdoch is like a barking mad dog in the corner of the room, and the main job is to just keep it quiet and shut it up. So you just keep feeding it and doing whatever you got to do to keep it quiet, and the cycle of enabling just continues. Now, I wish that it was quite different to this, but this is going to continue until there is substantial media reform in Australia. And that's not going to happen under a coalition government because they reap a lot of benefits by supporting News Corporation in the way that they do. And it's probably not going to happen under a future Labor government. So it seems like we'll be stuck with this situation for a long, long time. My
1: model is that no one should own more than 10% of the media. The internet throws things out of whack a little bit, because it's starting to be taken over by big corporations. If you look at YouTube's owned by Google and Facebook owns Instagram and things like that, and that's an international thing, so that's harder to control. But within Australia, you can have 10% ownership tops. You can have truth in reporting laws like they have in Canada, like they have in New Zealand, where you can have whatever opinions you like, but you must tell the truth about them this isn't an imposition on free speech. In fact, it helps free speech because you can't then have Andrew Bolt or Miranda Devine or Ray Hadley or Kyle Sanderlands making stuff up because it suits their opinion. You know, they can essentially get unsubstantiated stuff and speak to it, which, of course, is hugely problematic. Now, the other thing, too, we have some of the softest media ownership laws And they really need to be tightened up. I think probably need a hung parliament of a lot of independents to start to get things done. And it'll be hard and it'll be awful for them as the media starts to protect itself. And it's not something that I don't think can be done overnight. More radical independents, which there would be very few of, might say, yes, we nationalise the whole thing, put it all under the banner of the ABC. That doesn't solve anything, I don't think.
0: Well, the coalition, we know that they want to do the opposite of that. They want to sell the ABC, and they probably will if they win the next election. And Morrison obviously doesn't want to see a hung parliament. He very obviously wants to win the next election. But going off to New York to visit Rupert Murdoch, if this was all happening 12 months ago, Morrison probably wouldn't have gone anywhere. But he wants to look prime ministerial. He wants to look like a leader with a mission. And with an election just around the corner, he didn't really need to go to New York, but he decided that he just had to go. The other factor is that there was talk about Scott Morrison meeting with Donald Trump, the former U.S. president, and possibly meeting up with Brian Houston. There's no evidence that he has met up with Donald Trump or he will meet up with Donald Trump. There's no evidence that he's meeting up with Brian Houston But as usual with Scott Morrison, we won't know about it at the time. He'll deny having those meetings totally. And then in a few months time, we find out, yes, he did have a meeting with Donald Trump on the sidelines. And yes, he did have a meeting with Brian Houston as well, just before his court case in October.
1: That's Actually, that's why I don't think he'll meet with Brian Houston. Morrison is very, very good at distancing himself when things get difficult. And even to someone who he's been very loyal to, I suspect that If there was a meeting planned, it won't go ahead. The Trump one's interesting. And there's another theory too, and again, I actually doubt it because I don't think Australia is that important in the scheme of things, that Joe Biden set Morrison up to fail with France because he's openly supported Trump during the election. Biden couldn't even remember his name. (laughs) So I don't know that there's this complex House of Cards type conspiracy to get him back for meeting with Donald Trump. But again, perception is instructive. It's what we see. It's not what, what happens that counts.
0: And also international politics or any form of politics really. It's like a complicated game of chess with a cryptic crossword thrown in on top of that. And I don't want to make it sound like we've got more conspiracy theories than the anti-vaxxers. But there is a feeling that Morrison was set up to fail on the recent AUKUS deal to build those submarines with Britain and the US and cancel the existing French submarine deal. And as we discussed in the podcast last week, there's a possibility that the new AUKUS deal might not even happen in the future
1: yeah there's no contract there's no deal and I don't even think there was an agreement to see if a deal could be made I think it was just a thing in passing that they were told they could announce there's going to be a lot of tidying up before the election which is actually another reason why I don't think it'll be November but I could be wrong
0: You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now follow us at Patreon. Up next, we look at the latest round of opinion polling and what it all means for the next federal election. And we are getting closer to an election and everyone keeps asking us about the polls which are currently very favourable for the Labor Party. At the moment in the two party preferred voting intention it's 53% in favour for the Labor Party and 47% for the Liberal National Coalition and the Labor Party has been ahead in all of the polls for 2021. And if the final election result replicated what we're seeing in the current polls, Labor would pick up 13 seats and they would easily cruise into government. Should the Labor Party start preparing their election night celebrations and measuring up the curtains in the Prime Minister's office, or does everyone just need to go out and have a cold shower? I think
1: you've got to be really careful with polls. Polls are only indicative, taken as a trend over time. And the last election, as we saw, was wrong. All the polls predicted that it would be a a, a Labour victory. There were a few factors involved in the Labour not winning. Pork barrelling. The Liberal Party found seats they could target that the Labour Party either missed or didn't have the traction in and were distracted by other seats you had incumbency and incumbency is in australia is a very powerful thing we don't like to change governments very much just very quickly went through all the labor prime ministers who won from opposition and there's not as many as you think fisher back in 1915 scullin in 1929 whitlam in 72 After Whitlam was Hawke in 83, and then Rudd in 2007. And that's it. Every other Labor prime minister became prime minister because the support of the House of Representatives fell behind us. So it's very hard for a non-incumbent to win. And that is a factor that when we're looking at polling, we have to remember the Australian electorate doesn't like... Change very much. Now, I say this in the middle and possibly towards the end of a period where we've had uh, six or seven prime ministers since 2007, for example, but it's still been split between the two parties. So it becomes really interesting.
0: The other item that people do like to point out is that Scott Morrison is doing quite poorly at the moment, and, and he actually is. He's got a negative approval rating. It's minus four at the moment, and that means that 50% of the people that are asked in these opinion polls disapprove of his performance, and 46% of people approve. And there are many people that are suggesting that Scott Morrison is just so unpopular that surely he cannot win the next election politics is always a relative contest and it doesn't matter how unpopular a prime minister is If their opponent, in this case it's the opposition leader, if they're less popular, that's going to make a huge difference. At the moment, Anthony Albanese has got a negative approval rating of minus 11. So that means that Anthony Albanese's figures are actually much worse. There's also been a suggestion that these figures don't actually mean that much. Data such as the preferred Prime Minister, it's just a vanity contest, and they're actually quite right there. It doesn't actually mean very much unless the election is very, very close, and who knows what will happen at the next federal election. But it's hard to ignore the comparisons between Anthony Albanese and Bill Shorten. Albanese doesn't seem to be considered to be as divisive as Bill Shorten was, but the data and the figures are now in a similar trajectory to the 2019 election and to a lesser extent the 2016 election. Is this going to be a case where history repeats itself for the Labour Party in the lead up to the next election where At the moment, they're way ahead in the polls, they're up against an incompetent government with many, many problems, yet they're stuck with the leader that the electorate isn't so enthusiastic about, and could they end up losing an election that they shouldn't really be losing?
1: Elections are lost by oppositions, not necessarily won by governments. And the other thing too, it's not the most popular person who wins, it's the least unpopular generally. People like Bob Hawke and Kevin Rudd, who remained exceptionally popular are uh, outliers. John Howard had extremely low approval ratings, except towards the end of each of his terms, he'd start to turn on the more positive policies. And that would get people thinking, oh, maybe he's not so bad after all. And, you know, can we trust Kim Beasley or can we trust any of the other myriad Labour opposition leaders uh, who are there? I suspect that this is part of the Scott Morrison approach. I also suspect, though, that with the internet, he's not as good a manager of it as he likes to think he is. Neither is Labour, to be quite honest. But at the moment, it's like a boxing match with two who don't really know what they're doing. They're wild swinging punches, some of which are hitting themselves rather than the opponent. There is, of course, a model in which we get a lot of independence in and, and a hung parliament, which the mainstream media tend not to like, I think for a lot of reasons, but might be a good thing for Australia for a term or three or four to have a parliament where you need to have a lot of very tense and good negotiation to get the best results out rather than the current where it's just a group of entitled rich people carving it up for themselves
0: And also, if you're looking at the history of polling over the past 30 or 40 years, and we've definitely got the history of news polls since around 1985, and I've noticed that in the final six months before an election, there's an average of a 1% swing back to the incumbent back to the government of the day and that doesn't mean that it's always one percent sometimes it's a lot more sometimes it's a lot less even if they end up losing the election there's always a swing that comes back to the government it happened in 2007 for the Howard government they lost that election but they still had a swing towards them it happened for the Labor Party in the 2013 election where they lost that election by a long long way but they did have a swing towards them compared to polls published over that final six-month period on election day it was actually much better for them on the day so we do have to take this factor into account as well that whatever the polls are saying now it is going to be much closer when it comes around to the election time
1: oh for sure and i think too there's a sense in which for some of us you look at the government and you think how can they have any support at all i won't go through the scandals and incompetence and corruption that is well known it's not typical of earlier australian governments All governments have scandals and there's always a bit of corruption, but not to the level that it's been since 2013, really, and particularly since 2018, when uh, Scott Morrison takes over. But there's still a mistrust of the Labour Party.
0: The other issue that we do need to take into account is that the winners of surprise elections don't tend to do very well at the following election, and the twenty nineteen federal election it was considered to be a surprise victory for Scott Morrison and the Liberal National Coalition. In nineteen ninety three, Paul Keating and the Labour Party, they won that election, followed up by a landslide loss in nineteen ninety six. If we look overseas, John Major won the election in nineteen ninety two for the British Conservatives. That was all against the odds as well. They were defeated in a landslide loss in 1997. If we look closer locally, the WA government in 1989, no one expected them to win. They had a massive loss in 1993 after that. More recently, South Australia in 2014, that was also a surprise election victory and they went on to lose in 2018, although not by much. There was also a surprise victory for John Howard in 2004. It wasn't so much the, the victory itself, but the size of the victory against Mark Latham. That was massive in 2004 and they ended up losing in two thousand and seven, the following election. So Trump in two thousand sixteen as well. That's right. Trump in twenty sixteen. That was a surprise victory, ended up losing in twenty twenty. There's a number of different factors involved there as well. But my assessment is that psychologically, political parties, if they've been long-term governments and they end up getting a surprise victory, and it's almost like they're eking out yet another two or three years from their term in government, they tend to develop a sense of invincibility. And hmm. they've this point of ideological overreach where they behave in a different way than they're normally used to. They might not be as sharp and as focused as they need to be because they think, well, we don't need to work so hard on this because we've already won three or four elections in a row. We did pretty much nothing at the last election and we still ended up getting over the line. So how good is federal government? This is really, really an easy process. They're not as sharp as focused as they need to be. And this ends up being their Achilles heel.
1: Yeah. And I think, too, governments get tired and no one likes to admit they're tired. But I think not only do they get tired in terms of running out of ideas and focusing their energy on staying in power, but they get physically tired. Some of the better people go. The current government could afford to lose some senior ministers without too much damage to them. And you're right, we have a government that is arrogant enough to think that it can annoy two major trading partners and get away with it, and that its prime minister will be able to charm them back into seeing things our way. This is a prime minister who the president of the United States couldn't remember his name, So there is a a level, I think, of delusion. Whether this, of course, means that they'll lose the next election is not something I'm
0: prepared to comment on.
1: We live in strange, strange times. Anything can happen.
0: Well, every election is different. The circumstances for every election, the preceding events are quite different as well. The main factor is that every election is winnable. Every election is losable, irrespective of what the circumstances are. So we've mainly been talking about the news poll tonight, and that's the longest serving opinion poll for politics in Australia. There's another, there's a new kid on the block, that's the Resolve poll, and they actually put out their figures today. But that seems to be a very different story to the news poll. In primary voting, they've recorded 39% for the coalition and thirty one percent for the Labour Party. They haven't provided two party preferred figures, but those figures are radically different to news poll, which show Labour at thirty eight percent and thirty seven percent for the coalition. How did two different polls arrive at two seemingly different conclusions?
1: It's all to do with the methodology, of course. Who did they ring? What questions did they ask? There's that wonderful scene in Yes, Prime Minister, where Humphrey is explaining to Bernard how you can manipulate questions to get the result you want. But there are six or eight or even ten polling groups, and one of the things we need to do is map all of them together and get a broad average, and then map them over time. It's a complex thing. Um, There are some really good people who do it. The poll bludger, William Bow and Possum Comitatus He's another one who does a very good job at looking at polls and trying to be predictive. And of course, the final thing is that as every particularly troubled politician says, there's only one poll that counts and that's the election. Things can change at the last moment. It's why a lot of parties hold back their big announcements till just before the advertising cutoff or the nine o'clock news. A lot of elections here have been decided the night before. We have a large degree of people who wait for every single bit of evidence to come out before they make up their mind. And that's okay. It just depends on how that evidence has been presented, etc.
0: Well, the upshot is that opinion polls do tell us an interesting story. They tell us a story of today and the past, but not of tomorrow. That's the main thing to remember about opinion polls. Labor is ahead in the opinion polls right now, and they have been since October 2021, which to me is quite surprising because all the signs around the world and in Australia as well, that during a pandemic, incumbent governments have a massive advantage. And Labor being ahead in the polls right now doesn't actually mean anything at all for the next election. Labor was well ahead in the polls for all of the 2016 to 2019 parliamentary period. They were slightly ahead in the lead up to the 2016 election, but they ended up losing both of those elections, the 2016 and the 2019 elections. Being ahead in the polls right now, it's absolutely not a guarantee for anything at all. I'd qualify one
1: thing you said, and that is that governments that have been seen to manage the pandemic well have survived, even if they've done nothing else. And I point to the um, Gutwine government in Tasmania who won an election that perhaps they shouldn't have. But he's managed the pandemic well. Trump didn't manage the pandemic well. Uh, Macron did. Merkel did. Boris could go either way at the moment. Some bits they've done well. They got a very quick vaccine rollout done, but other bits they haven't. The hospital system's at breaking point. That will be a factor Will people remember that Scott Morrison blew the Pfizer, said it wasn't a race, helped New South Wales stay open, which spread the virus through the country? There's a sense in which people have very short memories, and there's a sense in which people have very long memories, and it's going to be hard to tell. When most of the world is coming out of the pandemic, and Australia is still in it, too, which is the likely scenario for uh, the next election, it will
0: be interesting. That's it for this New Politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis.